Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Well, here we are again. I'm Brendan. I'm here with Mark, the Vet Gurus, and it is the weekend in January the 26th of 2018, which in Australia is Australia Day. So we're going to have a little bit of a chat about Australia Day, aren't we, Mark? So um, we might actually jump straight into that. And um, what do you want to talk about Australia Day, Mark? You want to um, well, I was, enlighten I was pretty. I was pretty keen to um, just touch on the controversy associated with Australia Day. Um, I have to declare at the outset that um, in you know how um, some members of your family go back through the family tree and identify aspects of your history you didn't know were there. So it did come to light that um, that I do have uh, um, uh, uh, some Indigenous. Australian ancestors, even though I don't necessarily identify as an Indigenous Australian at the moment. Um, so I do have a lot of empathy with their um, their sort of point of view, and um, and I've been really quite upset with the the um, the way that the controversy about Australia Day, which many Indigenous people refer to as, um, without a hint of irony, as Invasion Day. And I thought I'd get your opinion on it, Brendan. I thought I really wanted to know what you think. Oh, you, so you're just throwing it back to me, aren't you, Mark? Well, I'm perfectly happy. I'm perfectly happy to say to you that <laughs> well, I, I think, I think that, of it. Yeah, you go ahead first. Yep. I think of it as um, the sort of thing where um, it's not it's it's not as uh, – you know, the, the argument is that, oh, you know, we, we celebrate Australia Day and there's just one day and that's the day that we all come together and celebrate. And by a series of historical events, um, uh, it's, it's ended up being the day that, um, that uh, Captain Philip landed um, and um, declared the country English and, um, and so it is uh, offensive. And I make the analogy that, you know, if... We were all going to a show or a party. If you and I were going to a show or a party and um, you said to me that, uh, you know, I've got something on that day, so can we make it another day? I would just go, you're my mate. And uh, if that day doesn't work for you, then that doesn't mean we don't have to celebrate it, but we'll just pick another day. Um, and I don't understand why that logic doesn't apply in this circumstance. I just don't. I, I think the the reason... Um, that I struggle with it is that I, in that analogy that I drew, um, I would um, change the plans because I care about what you feel um, or um, any other number of people for that matter. And so when you go the opposite way, when you avow that you're not going to change it, even though it's important to someone else, that the implication is that you don't care what they think. You're going to do what you want no matter what. So I think I don't uh, like the idea that people aren't more tolerant and more thoughtful of the way that other people are feeling and um, where it makes no difference to them one way or the other, they're not prepared to change. I think that's wrong. It's difficult. I don't know what, what the solution is, Mark. I mean, I'm, I'm probably along similar lines to you in that I think it's good if we can celebrate Australia Day or or, or be a bit nationalistic, um, but it should be inclusive for everybody and and, and chosen in a way that um, everybody, whether they're the first Australians, the Indigenous people, or or, or the or the invaders, um, have um, ha- have time to celebrate this um, great country we live in. Um, and I think other countries have have, have had similar. Issues with dealing with their national days, haven't they, and trying to decide to um, um, make it inclusive for everybody. And I think part of the reason why a lot of people are pushing against changing the date is that the, 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 the 
the, the people who like Australia Day as it is um, feel it as a as that they're losing um, that they they're losing the battle if they if they don't um, um, keep it on the same day. But no, I think that's silly. I think the whole idea is exactly like you said that it should be something that all of us celebrate. And if it, if 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 one particular group finds it offensive, um, then we should do our best to understand why that is the case and and try and um, work around it yeah so um hopefully um greater minds than me will be able to work out um how we can solve it so we can all enjoy um a day off work which is what we have in australia on the 26th um which is a friday um and um Maybe it will change to another day and we can still have a day off work. Um, and um, the downside with that is um, you and I as practice owners will be paying our paying our, um, our employees to sit at home, which is fair enough if they're um, well-earned um, um, time off for them. But, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's a very emotive topic, isn't it? So, um, yeah, it's not a... Unfortunately, I don't think it's a simple solution with 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 a lot of these things. So yeah, it's um it's one of those things that make me a bit sad. We were talking previously off air, and we're not going to talk about it on air about um, um, dealing with political um, things within the veterinary world, and it's um can get quite frustrating, can it, Mark? As far as trying to um, get people you- to just see the see the see the greater picture and and just see that um, what's important and what isn't important and um yeah sorry go ahead you were saying in that discussion that um that uh, it is always nice when people can not make it about them and us where they can see a bigger picture when it's about all of us and um and whether it's those discussions we have in in our profession um uh, there's a synergy to uh, our body politic if we're all involved and um, if we're all headed in the same direction. Um, things get torn down and slowed up if we're arguing over um, over things that maybe are, are uh, you know relatively easy to fix. And I um, I I think the great weight of time and history and caring will mean that in um, in due course it won't happen for a while but in due course the date will change as a mark of respect to those first australians in an attempt to include them and um and uh and i sometimes wonder about the you know that um that those people who are in in positions of power that they're they don't necessarily i I would have thought they would have the wisdom to see which way history is headed and and yet they still stand on their dig and want things to be the way they always have been. Yes, yes. Well, we better move on or else we have to re- change our um, pod- podcast <laughs> the to, title um, of the podcast. to to something completely um, boring and um, political. Um, shout out to our listeners from number six in our list of most popular um um, listeners or the, or the most subscribers, and that is Norway, Mark. Norway um, is number six on our list of um, the countries of um, vets and vet students and nurses that listen to us. So hello to everybody in Norway. I haven't been to Norway, but I'd love to go to Norway. Have you been to Norway, Mark? Never been to Norway, and, and when you first go, I'll probably be alongside you. <laughs> Yeah, it would be good. Um, we'll get there one day. We'll get there one day. So let's jump into the news before we talk about our main topic. And our main topic today, um, considering it is Australia Day, um, will be on an iconic Australian reptile. So we'll jump to that shortly. But the first news item, Mark, is your one. And guess what? It's another bird one, isn't it? <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, uh, this is a, um, another story from one of our favourite sources of, uh, of one of wonderful information, the Mother Nature Network. Um, and this story talks about um, uh, noise pollution. Um, and it's an, it fascinates me how... Um, you know, the, the normal thing for us is to focus on maybe habitat destruction and uh, chemical pollution, uh, um, carbon, um, all those sorts of things. But there are other aspects of our modern life that um, that uh, have a an effect on um, our wild animals. And um, and this particular article talks in 
um, detail about the way that um, that noise from our society, from our civilization, along the side of roads, um, near airports, how that has an effect um, on um, particularly the birds that are in the vicinity. Um, and there's been a number of studies um, uh, that uh, look at different aspects of this, um, and uh, and I think the the take home message um, is that um, that the there's no doubt that um, those operations, uh, for example, the the um, one of the latest studies in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences looked at how constant noise from oil and gas operations affects the songbirds that live nearby. And it focused on species that live in New Mexico um, and across all species and life stages, the, uh, the birds nesting in areas with more noise showed, um, funnily enough, lower baseline levels of corticosteroids, um, which uh, is the stress hormone that researchers use to sort of identify stress, but they interpreted that to mean that the birds had been overstressed and that their system was exhausted, much like PTSD uh, condition in people. So the flight or flight response is, um, is overworked and exhausted. Um, and this leads to... Um, particularly reproductive issues, a number of other health issues, but particularly uh, um, chicks with reduced body size and, and altered feather growth. Um, um, and so, uh, but interestingly enough, the researchers noticed that um, these findings of, um, of poor uh, hatchling size and, um, and uh, body protein and feather growth, um, they also occurred in very, very quiet areas as well, as well as very loud areas. And so there seems to be a sweet spot of, um, of moderate background noise where um, reproductive activity is, is optimised. Um, in addition, there were, uh, there's um, another recent study which suggests that um, that birds actually close to the road, um, that they they actually sing their song much louder, um, and that bluntens the you know the, the the finer details of the song as the birds try to crack the noise out to beat the traffic and um, and uh, and communicate with their uh, um, potential partners or um, set out alarm calls, they are much more vigorous and they spend much more energy. Um, and once again, this is associated with a decline in reproductive success and species richness. So the, the, um, I was fascinated that, um, that our human activity, not just in the, the um, gross uh, physical results, the habitat destruction and, um, and um, gross pollutants, but also in less obvious ways, our human interactions interfere with um, even birds that seem to be going okay, cannot, uh, can be um, suffering as a consequence. And I think that follows on a bit from last um, week's little um, little uh, news item we had about the bird identification system too, um, the, the potential app that um, could identify birds based on their bird songs. So it might be a bit more complex to develop that type of app than um, than we think considering these sort of changes that occur with the birds um, when they're exposed to traffic noises, etc. Yeah, so, um, yeah. So um, what they need to do is move out into the country, don't they, those birds, <laughs> and um, get away from the noise. <laughs> so don't the next... <laughs> that we sure do, Mark. We sure do. Um, those um, the next news story is one of two we have on a little bit about um, animal welfare, and the first one is f um, my article there, and that is um, in the U.S. New Jersey plan to ban exotic circus animals suffers a setback, and um, New Jersey legislators recently passed a bill that would ban exotic animals from circuses and fairs, but it what was not signed into law by the governor 
uh, before he left office. Um, and the legislation was named Nosey's Law after a 35-year-old elephant that was seized from the Great American Family Circus over allegations of neglect and mistreatment. Nosey is currently living in a, at a Tennessee elephant sanctuary that focuses on providing a stable community environment for elephants that lived in captivity, said the article. And um, just scrolling down a little bit here. Um, the bill sailed through the Senate, the state Senate unopposed and received only two no votes in the legislature's lower house. But the governor opted not to sign the bill into law before his term ended and no explanation was immediately provided. But advocates of the Nosey's law say it's only a matter of time before a version of the bill resurfaces. Um, and I think part of the debate was that um, it um, the bill was a bit fairly broad and it was saying um, we want to ban um, not only um, elephants but um, any exotic animal from being in a circus. And I don't think that's a bad news. Um, um, I'd probably prefer that myself. Um, I, um, we have a very famous, um, um, well, we, well, it's famous down here, um, circus um, in, in Melbourne, which is a human-only circus, um, Circus Oz, which does travel around the world. It's not quite Cirque du Soleil, but it's a good fun circus and I think they're the best sort of circus to take kids to and we, we certainly took our kids to Circus Oz um, fairly early on. I remember taking, in the bad old days, taking one of uh, my eldest daughter to a um, one of these travelling circuses that um, travel all around Australia um, and um, they just set up the big tent, or it's a fairly little tent actually, um, in at the local park um, once or twice a year as they travel around um, Australia. And um, yeah, they had all sorts of animals. They had some pretty mangy looking, um, you know, they had they'd not the, the usual stamp collection, one tiger. Um, I don't think they had an elephant, a few horses and, um, you know, a monkey and a few other animals, but it was a bit sad watching them. Then actually they did have an elephant because then um, we wandered around just before the show started and there they are just, you know, shackled um, to a stake, um, sitting out there looking bored and doing um, stereotypical behaviour there. So I think it's good that, um, you know, um, my personal belief is we should um, think about banning all these um, types of circuses. Um, what's your thoughts, Mark? Well, it's been really interesting in New South Wales. The the um, We have a political party in New South Wales, the Animal Justice Party, and as fate would have it, um, the, um, the, uh, the, the member of parliament who is the member for that party in New South Wales is a gentleman by the name of Mark Pearson, who's a friend of mine. And um, that, that party has been... Um, has been very um, vigorous in its um, uh, campaign to end uh, circus animals. And just just down on the central coast, only uh, half an hour's drive from where we are, the, the uh, Stardust Circus, one of the, you know, really genuinely old school um, circuses <laughs> with um, lions behind cages and whatnot, they've... they've been the subject of protest at the moment and um and there is um possibly some legislation going toward to the new south wales parliament to to end that process at some stage in the future so so i think um not only in america but um also all across the world i think there's a growing uh, um awareness that um it's difficult to provide these animals with the the uh, type of life that they probably um deserve in the circumstance um like a traveling circus yes um and i think the difficulty of dealing with it um and i've only had very fleeting um times when i've been called out to these types of circus um animals is that it's usually just a fire brigade um sort of stuff where where the animal's injured and there's very little if any preventative care um, aspects um, with, with the animals, um, not with all of them, but certainly with a fair number of these um, travelling type circuses, which is not great, I don't think, for the animals. Um, so we lead on to story number three, Mark, and that's another animal welfare um, story a bit closer to home for you. It is an, uh, an article I noticed in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald, that um, August um, paper that we've, um, well, we've been... Um, 
we've talked about the SMH um, sort of losing maybe its edge, but this article um, uh, from the 22nd of January um, is talking about a development application that's been placed to house to develop a um, a farm, a, uh, a high quality, um, uh, more, nearly a million dollars is being invested in this facility at uh, Bathurst. Um, it's owned by one of the, the big Sydney pet shops. Uh, the owner of the pet shop owns the property as well. And their intention is to set up a world-class dog breeding facility, um, which would uh, breed in particular cavoodles and other poodle hybrids to be sold through their shop in Sydney. Um, and, and of course, uh, this um, uh, um, has raised the ire of many um, of the, you know, the Bathurst Council has received many um, uh, comments during the, you know, the period where the development application has been open for comment. Um, and it, uh, um, and they've been drawing parallels with uh, the, uh, the, the typical um, puppy farm that the RSPCA has closed down a whole series of them. Um, and the RSPCA has a formal definition of uh, a puppy farm that is an intensive dog breeding facility that is operated under inadequate conditions that fail to meet the dog's behavioural, social or psychological needs. And, and the gentleman making this application is saying that that's where the difference is that his design specifically does um, does uh, um, is designed to satisfy those uh, behavioural, social, and psychological needs. That's the whole point of imploring the um, eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars into the development. Um, and his argument is that if uh, if we are to um, to uh, you know effectively ban developments such as this on the basis that they are um, you know that despite the fact that they satisfy all the local council and state government regulations with respect to animal care, um, his argument is that um, that will just uh, mean that the uh, people who see that sell their puppies on Gumtree um, who, who have no, there's no accountability for, um, those people, uh, you know, it's just going to create a greater market for them and, uh, and drive the whole... Um, uh, breeding of puppies underground and uh, result in worse animal welfare outcomes. So, so like many things, it's not not a clear-cut um, this is good or this is bad thing. So, yeah, what's your thoughts on it, Mark? And for those um, overseas, um, Gumtree is equi- sort of a, 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 a down-market version of eBay. Um, <laughs> it's actually owned. I think it's owned by eBay, so it's, I think it's the equivalent of what they have in the, uh, the USA called Craigslist for those USA li- listeners. Um, so, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, does it is it making things worse having a high class supposedly, assuming that they are? It is, a, and I see the the, the artist sketches of the kennels, etc. Breeding facility for sixty um, breeding dogs of um, Cavoodle. Um, breed, um, or should we not be allowing this um, and and taking dogs from the um, from the yeah the RSPCA and unwanted dogs that are always going to be there with the potential problems with, that might occur from those? What what's your thoughts? Is it a yes or a no, Mark? Or well, maybe I, my my <laughs> my I always like to be you know not stand on the fence. I think you've got to jump to one side. And while um, uh, I can accept the argument that um, not permitting these things um, is potent has the potential to make things worse. Um, I just think that um, a facility that breeds crossbred dogs to be sold for you know upwards of a thousand dollars, I I I struggle with that so badly when there are great dogs who are um, in our um, in our pounds and RSPCA facilities, looking for homes, um, I I just can't justify it in my mind. If I was a benign dictator running Bathurst City Council, um, I, I'm afraid I would, um, yeah, um, be, be uh, asking them to not build such a thing. But um, 
But I, I do admit, having said that, and coming down on the side of the fence uh, that uh, suggests it might not be a good thing, I do understand it's more complex than a simple yes-no answer might allow. Mm. You've fallen off the fence there, haven't you, Mark? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's – I don't know. I don't know the answer to most of these things. I have no idea with a lot well, of the – I've got an interesting question. Theory? Do you have a theory? This this is not a theory. This is, well, I suppose I could extend it to a theory. Um, One of the things that I think happens to ageing veterinarians who've been in private clinical practice for a long, long period of time is that um, I'm struggling. I've got lots of clients who do an awesome job. They are highly motivated. They might have exotic animals or dogs. But I still worry that, um, you know, because of the dog's breeding or because of um, early socialisation, I don't know that they are having a great life. Uh, lots of the dogs that, that I see that um, are hugely loved, um, they're, they're, they have real issues. And, geez, I don't know, as, as, a, as a species, I think as, as humans we do a bloody awful job as custodians of uh, wilderness places and animals that are in our care. So I, 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 um, I don't think it's a, a uh, I think more generally breeding of dogs as pets in circumstances like this is often associated with bad outcomes. Well, that um, there's another topic for a podcast there, and I think it goes back to we we were both in attendance for a talk at a um, veterinary conference uh, here in Australia where a veterinary ethicist um, spoke about should we have reptiles as pets and extended it more broadly to should we be having dogs and cats as pets and all the other domesticated animals as pets, um, and it was certainly an eye-opener um that um that particular talk but maybe we should have that as a main topic in a future podcast so let's rip through the next two um news items mark the next one's mine and it's a bit um we're ended on a couple of light-hearted ones here um and I'll, i'll this is an article from the washington washington post um this week or last week, and um, I'll just read part of this particular article. It was a Monday in August 2017 when the man showed up in the emergency room in a San Francisco um, hospital clutching a plastic grocery bag and asking doctors to treat him for tapeworms, parasites that can invade the digestive tract of animals and humans. Barn, or Ban, who's the doctor, said he didn't think too much of it. He had heard patients express similar concerns about tapeworms in the past. And he, the doctor opened the bag and inside, he said, was a cardboard toilet paper tube with a tapeworm wrapped around it. And he unraveled it and he stretched it out on the ER floor and measured it all 1.5 metres, five foot of tapeworm, he said, in an interview with the Washington Post. Um, and for those of you interested, we'll have a link to the particular article which has a picture of the of the, um, of the toilet roll with the parasite um, wrapped around it. Um, and um, he wasn't so certain what species of tapeworm it was or how long it had been inside the patient. Um, he said his patient was convinced he got the tapeworm from eating raw fish and given the fact that the man had recently travelled, had not recently travelled, nor been drinking questionable water, and the fact that he had ate, he said he had ate sushi or sashimi almost daily, he was almost positive that the self-assessment was correct. But um, he wasn't quite sure. And then the article goes on and talks about the um, CDC, the Centre for Control and Prevention of Disease, um, talks about emerging infectious diseases, and they were... Um, um, mainly talking about the um, Japanese tapeworm um, that's um, found in wild salmon caught in Alaska's icy waters, and it's the Diphyllobothrium species of, of tapeworm. And um, they studied um, tapeworm experts from the Czech Academy of Sciences and biologists at the Alaska Department of Fish and Game concluded that the salmon from the American and Asian Pacific coasts and elsewhere pose a potential danger for persons who eat raw fish. So that's the take-home message there, Mark, is don't eat sashimi and um, or be very careful where you get your raw fish from. And um, the good news story is... 
the good news story is, guess what he got treated with, the usual. And I, um, the, the reason why I had this article on here is I'm in the middle of writing a little case report for um, tapeworm infections in rabbit for an upcoming um, little presentation. And um, guess what we treat with is the usual we treat with any, and that's a praziquantel um, with, the, with these. Yeah, you were going to um, say something, Mark? I was literally going to say, do you treat with the guy I've been at? Can I eat sashimi if I take my prasiguantel? Yeah, that's right. So maybe you need to, um, it's your preventative um, treatment every every day. A bit like if you're in a malaria zone, you take your, you know, quinine or, or whatever. Um, um, the, the more effective drugs these days are preventative, yeah. Um, so it was a good, um, an interesting story. And yeah, um, I want uh, a five foot long, one and a half meter um, tapeworm that came out his bum. He he, fought, he he felt something wriggling there, and um, yeah, he he gradually. I think what he got, he, he reeled it in. I think he got it an empty toilet roll, and he, and he, not, he just kept not kept good images. He kept that. He kept turning it, turning it, turning it. And I think he was as re- reading a magazine while he's sitting on the um, on the toilet there um, until he managed to get it all out and then went to the ER. So that's my little story there. A tapeworm infection from eating raw fish. So beware. Um, your one is a um, bit more of a, um, um, a cutesy one, isn't it, Mark? Well, it is a cutesy one, and um, I was attracted to it because I've, I've um, a number of times in my life I've been lucky enough to attend uh, either Monrepo uh, up in Queensland or um, uh, the Turtle Island of um, Sandakan in Borneo and um, had the pleasure of um, close personal contact with uh, hatching sea turtles, which are just the cutest animals. Um, and this article talks about... Uh, um, some of the problems they face as uh, as they make their way to the ocean, and and it's not exactly the the um, result you would expect from the research that was done. And um, the 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 cornerstone start to the problem is that turtles head to the lowest brightest horizon because moonlight shines off the water, and they want to head towards the ocean. But along our coasts, many developments at the landward side of a turtle uh, rookery beach means that the turtles might inadvertently head to the highest brightest horizon and inadvertently have to travel a vastly greater distance before they get to the ocean so these researchers were interested in how that affected their survival did they become exhausted by maybe having to travel a whole lot further and how did that affect their ability to swim once they did get to the water and these intrepid scientists hooked up these beautiful little hatchling loggerheads um, in little um, wetsuits attached to um, attached to uh, um, force measuring needles in an idea in an attempt to get a measure of how much less well they swam after they'd travelled. Um, you know, uh, four or 500 extra metres um, to get to the water. And the surprising finding was that um, was that despite spending um, extra hours maybe crawling along the beach because they're disoriented by the bright lights, um, they still swam almost, um, uh, you know, no differently than if they'd... Um, if they just headed straight down to the water. They're incredibly tough. They have a number of adaptations to um, ensure that they um, that they still maintain excellent ability to um, maximise oxygen con- con- consumption and uh, control the lactic acid buildup in their muscles, and they swam and paddled their flippers just like they'd gone straight down to the water. The only negative would be that these bright lights probably break up the group of hatchlings and, uh, and of course, a large number of them heading to the water all at once in the one direction sometimes overwhelms predators who um, can only, of course, take so many. But if they're spread out by the light into a much smaller, you know, much smaller groups, um, then maybe the predators are making a bigger dent on them when they get to the water. But without a doubt, the cutest aspect of this whole article was the tiny, tiny wetsuit attached with a little um, clip to the uh, force measuring device. Um, I would love to have been the, um, the researcher presenting the, uh, the, uh, the, 
the um, proposal for that funding. I'm just going to cut these tiny little wetsuits and put them onto turtles and measure how well they're swimming. Um, but, geez, much better than me. He got it through. He or she got it through and uh, got to do the study. And um, they've got a great little video, haven't they, Mark, uh, um, um, on that um article or a link to it um i think it was from the mother nature network again that article um yeah of of the little turtles on the treadmill there so yeah there we go so we finished off on something not quite as deep or as or as um as um difficult to deal with um as as the other topics we had there but no it was a great little study that wasn't it i, I like that one um well we're just about ready you to have jump a book. You have into, a book yes we do we do i was going to say that i have a another review this week and i'm excited mark i'm you know i'm always excited but i'm extra excited and i've I've got the book only arrived yesterday, and it's um, you don't even know what it is, but um, it's a great little book. Um, and I've got four tabs here. I'm going to read out um, a couple of ex three ex excerpts from the book um, from it. But let me tell you what the book, um, and it leads on very nicely from a from a previous podcast that we have. So the title of the bookmark is "Does It Fart." The Definitive Field Guide to Animal Flatulence, um, written by Nick Caruso and Danny Rabiroti. So um, it is a whole book on um, with an illustrated illustrated guide as well with, with line drawings of animal flatulence. So it covers over 80 animals um, and basically there's one page on every, of, of each of those 80 animals um, uh, where they have a little bit of an overview of the animal and, set, and then state, does it fart or not? Um, and here we are on page 73, Mark, does it fart the rabbit? Um, and the answer is yes. And I was actually quite impressed with this book. Not only was it fun reading that um, a lot of the information in the particular um, um, paragraphs with all, all the, all the um, one-page um, articles on each species, um, to me, seemed um, very factual and, and, and um, um I was quite um, impressed um, by a lot of the detail they got in there, and th and they they threw in lots of um, just um, factoids of e each particular animal. So let me read from the Does It Fart um, from Rabbits, and this follows on from our I think it was around about episodes five, which was called Does It Fart um, with our podcast. Um, where are we here? So, um, yeah, um, saying that rabbits do fart. And, and the bottom line with the book is it says that um, you can basically tell whether or not a species is going to fart if it produces the um, um, particular bacteria that will um, produce gases in, in its um, intestinal tract. And um, the, the, the way this book um, um, came about is it was two zoologists who, um, um, who were very... Um, very active on um, social media and Twitter and Facebook, etc. And they um, occasionally had people questioning them, asking them, does a rabbit fart or does a bearded dragon fart or does a bird fart? Um, and they thought, hey, let's write a little book on this. So it's a little tiny little book. It's probably only about 15 centimetres um, um, high. It's a little hardback book, but um, it's quite good fun. So, um, yeah, so um, the rabbit one they talk about um, um, that, yeah, rabbits unsurprisingly both the, both the rabbits slightly disgust in diet because they talked previously about it being a coprophagic um, animal and their digestive system provides a perfect recipe for farts <laughs> rabbits not only can and do fart but they need to fart stress dehydration and a diet that is low in fiber but high in carbohydrates and sugar can lead to a build-up of gas within their intestines and i think you had a potential bloated rabbit today didn't you mate which is known as intestinal stasis while farts are often humorous this is no laughing matter for rabbits as this gas builds up is extremely painful and can become fatal very quickly unless properly released, sometimes requiring medical intervention. So I think that was quite a good little summary there that they had for the rabbit. So let me just flick over to one other species that I um, had a bit of a chuckle over and um, the next one was tortoise, does it fart? Yes. And the first paragraph talks about um, tortoises um, and turtles um, 
been that everything they do it is is at a slow pace, including their walking. Tortoises do a lot of things slowly. Um, for instance, the Galapagos tortoise can take up to twenty five years to reach sex, sexual maturity, and even their DNA can be slow. Um, and then jumping ahead to the last paragraph, um, and this made me chuckle. The last sentence, unfortunately. Comparative studies of fart speed throughout the animal kingdom has not yet been conducted. Uh, so at this point, we can only speculate that the tortoise may also be slower in the fart production than other groups of animals. Um, so I quite like that. And um, the final little quote I want to um, read from the bookmark, and this is addressed at you, so I want your answer on this, and this is birds. Do they fart? No. Um, is the answer to that. So they are saying um, birds do not fart. Um, why? Um, so reading directly from this book, birds do not have the same gas-producing bacteria in their gut that are found in mammals and other farting animals, and food passes quickly through a bird's digestive system, which leaves no time for a build-up of toots. All of the necessary anatomy is in place, though, so it is likely they could if they needed to. Although some people claim they have heard or maybe even have seen a bird fart, there are good alternative explanations for this ph phenomena. So far, the only scientifically documented record of a potential bird flatulus or flatus comes from the thesis of a Cornell graduate student, Alan Richard Wisebrod, who in much detail recorded the behaviour of the blue jay, and they go on. Um, and in one of his studies, defecation was accompanied by a small puff of whitish gas, <laughs> which wafted below and parallel to the slightly raised tail and then quickly dissipated. He also noted a second possible bird fart several days after his initial sighting. Unfortunately, this was likely just warmer water vapour from the faeces meeting the cooler air and producing the visible gas. And they do talk about with one other species, I think one of the parrots saying that no, Parrots do not fart. See, see the article on birds not farting um, and stating that parrots can be very good mimickers and they may be listening to their to their carers or the humans farting and then um, making a farting noise when they pass some um, feces. So do you think um, birds fart, Mark? Well, I think some do and some don't, Brendan. I, 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 um, and I think that uh, there's two important um uh, facts to bring to the um, discussion. The first one is that um, I reckon x-rays. I'm going to sit down and have a look at some of um, my x-rays because I think that is probably the hard and fastest way to determine whether there's gas in the gastrointestinal tract and, uh, and that's going to be a pretty good indication they're going to need to get that out. But, and I do think that um, just you've You've caught me off guard, but I'm almost certain that I've got some um, some chicken radiographs that pretty conclusively would uh, would demonstrate the production of uh, intestinal gas resulting in flatus. But there's no doubt that um, our finches, for example, um, have very very low. Some people would argue no gastrointestinal flora that is natural. Um, that their stools are devoid of bacterial contamination in the gut and they probably don't fart as a consequence so i think that they've got it half right that's my tip ah, not what to sit on the fence <laughs> you're sitting on the fence there mate um, <laughs> yeah it's a it's a fascinating little um fun book this and um one of the other species in there is a sloth so there's a huge variety of um, animals there um including some of our aquatic animals um and they do say the sloth does not fart because it does not um um they trash because they have such a slow digestive tract in it and they think it's the only mammal that does not fart. Um, and what their gut flora does is produce a lot of methane, but it is not farted out. It is absorbed through the gut into the bloodstream before being breathed out um, through the mouth there. Um, so sloths could be potentially be the only mammal not to fart. However, this may also be the case for other less well-studied species and also bats. Um, 
whose fart inhabits remain a mystery. So there we go. Um, so I score this a very aromatic 8 out of 10, 8.0 out of 10, Mark, but um, it's a fantastic little book. So Does It Fart? The Definitive Field Guide to Animal Flatulence. And it's a very inexpensive book. I mean, I think the link I've got is to, I think, the AmericanAmazon.com and the price of it there is uh, $10.69 US or $9.55 for the Kindle version. So there we go. So I think it's time we jump onto our main topic, Mark, and we're going to do a, a quick fire um, um, little Q&A or, or fast facts of uh, an, icon- an iconic Australian species, considering we've been talking about Australia Day, and that is the bearded dragon. And um, the bearded dragon is a very popular pet. Um, probably, you know, um, all continents of um, um, the world at the moment, isn't it? Um, it? It's an extremely popular pet in the USA. And as far as I know, um, um, the interesting factoid with that is I don't think ever um, was there one bearded dragon um, that was exported legally to the United States. And I think they got there from a roundabout way, didn't they, Mark? I think you've heard this story via, via Germany or, or, or Europe and ended up in the States and now they're bred in the many thousands or, or tens of thousands, but yet not one was originally exported um legally um to the states um so that's the that's the story there but they're a very popular pet so we're going to run through a a couple of important points regarding um care of bearded dragons that apply to to veterinarians and veterinary students and um things you may or may not know about um bearded dragons that will help you with that bearded dragon consultation when a client brings in a bearded dragon for a wellness check or even an unwell bearded dragon. So the first one is um, diet, Mark. What's the recommended diet for bearded dragons? Go, you've got two minutes for this. Two minutes. Well, it's a bit of a controversial topic. Um, I recommend for adult lizards that they want a considerable amount of plant material coupled with a protein source like some high-quality insect food. I don't like them to get mealworms, uh, not too many, maybe occasional one as a treat. Um, I... Um, I'm I'm pretty keen for them to not get too much fruit. That gives them some problems with uh, dental disease. So I like them to get uh, lettuces and um, nasturtiums and uh, hibiscus and daisies and um, as their plant material and um, and uh, and probably uh, crickets and cockroaches as their main protein source. Well, I'm pretty close to, pretty close to that. Mark myself, so a, a smorgasbord approach I recommend to my clients, um, lots of leafy salad type material with them, native fruits and berries um, for those of um, those in Australia, um, a variety of wild caught insects, not just the commercial ones. And I'm the same with you in that I don't recommend mealworms as a, as a, as a, um, as maybe as a treat very occasionally, but as a, a consistent food item, no. Um, and um, and mixing it all together and adding a bit of a reptile supplement on there as well. And, um, yeah, not much fruit at all because not only, yeah, do we see dental disease in bearded dragons, but they also produce very pungent farts. Did you know, Mark? I'm, I'm sure you've heard that um, with some of the bearded dragons. And bearded dragons are in the book of Does It Fart as well, so there's another reason why to get that particular um, book. Um, so, yeah, that's the, that's the sort of diet summary. The next one I'll take, Mark, and that's the temperature. So, you know, what do you recommend to clients for the temperature gradient for for a vivarium for a um, bearded dragon that's housed in an artificial environment in a vivarium inside? And that's basically to I really concentrate on the simple things when I'm talking to clients about this. And I mention one. We need a temperature gradient. So we need a hot end and a cool end um, and get that, that concept across to the clients that um, having that whole enclosure, one temperature is just as bad um, as having it super hot or super cold. Um, so we need a, a hot end and a cold end um, and we'll stick to Celsius, um, the international units, um, and we want a hot spot. Um, of high 30s for that particular, um, for, for most bearded dragons. So I usually talk about 37 to 39 degrees Celsius as far as a hot spot. And that means, and you really need to get across to the client that they, 
that the lizard can, um, we measure the temperature on the bar skin log, for instance, has to be 37 to 39 degrees. It is not what the thermostat of the enclosure um, is set at. So the owner needs to get a separate thermometer and do measurements around the enclosure. And I usually recommend probably low 20s, maybe a little bit lower up the coolest end of the enclosure. What do you suggest? Any other comments on the temperature um, gradient? Uh, they're exactly like ours. We we want the preferred body temperature of these animals to be 34 or 35 degrees. They need something um, in that 37 to 39 range at the hot spot and maybe down to um, 24 or we don't like them um, to get much under 20. They can cope with um, temperatures, particularly uh, in the winter at night, getting down to 16 degrees C, but um, we're normally suggesting a range between 24 and 38 degrees. Light-in, Mark. What do you recommend for light-in for bearded dragons? Well, this is, once again, you've given me the controversial one. Um, uh, I, we want them to have... Um, uh, a diurnal cycle. Uh, a, a, um, we usually have a uh, daylight of some description, one of the commercial s full spectrum um, daylight imitators, um, and we like them to have a you know a, a, um, a heat source, maybe a ceramic globe or um, something along those lines. Um, they need exposure to um, ultraviolet light in order that they can um, process. Uh, vitamin D correctly um, and in fact we probably for most of our clients um, not that I want to speak disparagingly of them but um, this is a really difficult thing to get right and we often ask them to have the animals spend some time outside each week in a in an outdoor supplementary enclosure where they will get some exposure to natural sunlight so that they can process that stuff the um, UV production from those tubes or um, daylights uh, wanes before the actual light does and so four to six months after installation they will be producing not much at all and the distance from the animals plays a critical role if the tubes are you know 30 or 40 centimeters away from the lizards the the inverse square law means that um, they're actually not getting all that much uh, effective uv light um, to trigger the calcium metabolism uh, the normal calcium metabolism issues that uh, um, that they need to develop from exposure to those lights yep i agree totally and the other thing to make sure you've uh, mentioned to clients is that they change those uv lights regularly so to human eyes they still look like they're working but over time they degrade and the output of the uv decreases um we used to talk about changing them at least every 12 months. We currently recommend every six months, and I think a lot of people, a lot of um, um, reptile vets recommend the same. Um, and I just get clients to either write it on the actual um, globe there with an indelible pen or just put it on their, you know, their 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 smartphone and put a reminder on for six months and throw it out and put a new one as far as the outside enclosures i agree totally and i strongly recommend to all our clients even though we're in melbourne which can be very variable weather that they have an outside enclosure and if the weather's good they put their bit of dragon outside and i and i I'm constantly recommending just the concept of something like a rabbit hutch. Um, so it has an area that the, that, that the um, bearded dragon can get away from direct sunlight so it won't get cooked if it's left out, even on a mild day if it can't get away from this direct sunlight. And um, it's escape-proof and it's predator-proof and it has a mesh um, where the light can get through that it's not perspex or glass um, there. So um, any other general husbandry um, quick quick things you want to talk about, Mark, before we jump into the a couple of the potential diseases that we commonly see in beta dragons? Oh, there was two quick points I was going to ask you about, Brendan. The first one was, um, was substrate. Um, I was going to say that there is no such thing as the perfect substrate, um, but we do try and uh, make sure that um, young lizards don't get exposed to too much sand. And if you are feeding them um, to maybe uh, have a, a space or separate enclosure for feeding that they're not um, 
taking those insects or plants from um, the substrate where they're likely to ingest it. Um, and the other thing I was going to mention was how long they live. What is the lifespan of a normal central uh, inland bearded dragon? I don't think there's um, anybody done any decent studies, but my general comments to clients are five to 15 years. Um, we do see a reasonable number of bearded dragons that do get over 10 years of age. I kept them myself for for many years um and my last lot of bitter dragons i i gave away to one of the local um teaching institutions and they were um i think they'll be the dragons that i got as youngsters um so I, I knew their exact age um down to weeks and they were given to this teaching um secondary college when they were 12 and they lived to 15 those particular ones um but we do see a fair number of um pet bearded dra dragons that um, are unwell for various reasons and end up um, dying or being put to sleep between five and ten. So that's sort of my my general um, thoughts on, on lifespan with them. Um, have you, do you have anything else to add to that, Mark? Unsurprisingly, I'm saying almost the same thing. My understanding is there's been some ecological studies which suggest that in the wild they, you know, seven is... Uh, um, a very old wild inland bearded dragon um, and uh, they rarely get to double figures in the wild but in captivity they definitely do you know as you said we we're aware of um individual animals at 14 and um still going pretty strong so um five to 15 is a good summary i reckon and your comment on substrate, yes. Um, what I tend to recommend is think about having a feeding enclosure separate from their main vivarium, which is what you mentioned. And, and we, I certainly recommend the same um, for, for turtles as well, um, that you take them out of the aquarium, put some water in a little feeding tub and the turtle in there and three things happen. Same same with the bit of dragons when you're feeding them outside the enclosure. You can watch that individual feed and see whether or not it is or isn't feeding because the food's been put in that particular tub or enclosure secondly um, it, for the aquatic animals like the turtles um, it's not putting stress stress on the um, system and, and the filter um, if they're ripping apart food items that are then getting sucked up into the filter for an aquatic um, reptile and and thirdly mo majority of them not all of them but but majority of those um, reptiles will be trained in that they realise that they're going into the feeding tank or the feeding enclosure and they get excited um, and they know it's feed time. So I think it's something to really push for the clients to do. And, yeah, as far as um, the actual substrate, yeah, it's a balance between something that's like a hospital cage but a bit of a prison for that turtle and that would be what we tend to have in, in the hospital and that's just paper or newspaper as a substrate, easy to clean and hygienic but probably not much fun and not much environmental enrichment for that animal or something completely different with a with, with really thick um, um, level of substrate that might be difficult to clean. Great for environmental enrichment, but a bit of a nightmare to clean. So it's getting a balance between those two. So we'll quickly jump on to two or three of the... Um, in this rapid fire um, bearded dragon um, discussion, um, a few of the common diseases we see with bearded dragons. Uh, Mark, do you want to mention one of them? Um, well, we've already sort of canvassed the whole metabolic bone disease issue and um, and I just um, uh, reiterate it as one of the main things we have the animals presented to us for. We'll regularly see um, hatchlings, uh, recent uh, hatchlings who um, maybe have parasite issues. They may not have correct exposure to um, uh, ultraviolet light and... Um, and their diet may not be as um, smorgasbord in nature as we would like, and um, those lizards will start to um, develop maybe seizures because of low blood calcium, um, and uh, and they may manifest as little tremors to start with, uh, accompanied by muscle weakness, and then eventually the bones will be soft and bend, and the animals will get to the uh, stage of immunocompromise and have other problems and possibly die. So um, we've 
we've probably touched on that a number of other times. What, what about um, uh, follicular stasis, Brendan? Uh, follicular stasis. Well, before I jump into that one, I just I just thought of something with their diet recommendations. In that some areas of the world, they um, um, veterinarians are, are sometimes reluctant to recommend a wild caught um, smorgasbord of insects to bearded dragons, and, and potentially that's um, um, the right thing to do in some areas because in 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 in, in areas that we're, we're dealing with a species that's native to Australia and, and it, they can virtually eat any type of insect that's out there because that's what they've evolved to to survive um, with eating. Um, but in some areas of the world, they may be eating something like a firefly in, in the USA, for instance. That it's been well documented that, that even an adult bearded dragon eating one particular species of firefly can be toxic. So so just, just have a bit of a chat to your local um, Vet, um, exotic vets in the country that you're in as far as whether or not it's safe to feed some of these um, wild-caught um, insects to them. So, yeah, follicular stasis. Um, bearded dragons are notorious for this follicular stasis condition and I think what we might do is... Um, have reproductive problems of reptiles in a, in a separate podcast, Mark, because it's a bit of a complex one talking about the process and the preventative aspects of it and whether we can prevent it and the treatment aspects of it as well. But but if listeners just um, realise that we... Um, it is important to identify whether you do have a, a male or a female bearded dragon there because um, if if it is a female, you need to put um, reproductive problems and follicular stasis high on the list of an unwell female bearded dragon, especially around the summer period in Australia. Um, if you So how male. do you tell the difference between the boys and the girls? Ah, good question. Well, um, the easiest way to tell is to lift up their tail um, and, 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 and um, even with the juveniles, um, so the tail is um, um, lifted and, and, and um, pushed towards the head of the animal, and you're looking at the cloacal or cloacal area of the of the um, of the bearded dragon. And in the males, you will see two fairly obvious swellings at the tail base on either side, um, and that is the two hemipenes, one on either side. And in the females, you do not have those two swellings there, and that's a pretty accurate method of of, of IDing um, any bearded dragon, regardless of age. For the adult bearded dragons, the boys, the males are very easy to tell um, because they have very prominent femoral pores. So as in femur, on the inside of those thighs, you see these big swellings, these femoral pores or glands um, that almost look like nip, a row of nipples along there, and that's telling you that's a boy, um, their femoral um, pores in the, in the adult boys. Um, so that's the easiest way to tell. You can tell externally in, in the majority of them, and, and both those techniques are very accurate. Um, once you've done a few of them, um, um, I, I'd regard it as extremely accurate. Otherwise, you're, you're looking at um, other methods like scoping them and, and looking at the gonads um, because we don't have external genitalia in the species. So let's jump into to maybe two other quick ones. I'll take the first one there, Mark, as far as conditions we commonly see in bearded dragons, and that is a condition we see in young bearded dragons, and that's fight wounds. Is re they're really common in young bearded dragons, and these are bearded dragons that are anything from six months to, to probably one and a half years, two years of age, and it still happens in adult ones as well. Um, and that's where one or more bearded dragons will become dominant and um, part of that um, dominance will be exhibited by them chewing on or biting off particularly toes and or tail tips. Um, so we see lots of these, Mark, and I'm sure you do too, where you see these juvenile bearded dragons where the um, uh, an inexperienced keeper um, or person will go out and buy a few bearded dragons, take them home, and what typically happens is you'll get one or more that will grow quicker than the others because they get to the food first. And you need to start separating the bearded dragons based on size, not on age. Otherwise, you'll start to get those more dominant, bigger ones starting to bite the other ones. And we do lots of um, toe amputations and partial limb amputations in them and even partial tail amputations in them every year. The final topic, Mark, is coccidia, um, so parasitic problems in bearded dragons, and that's a, a bit of a worry, isn't it, in, in bearded dragons? It certainly is. It's, uh, I think it plays into the um, 
particularly with young bearded dragons, it plays into a whole immunosuppression, failure to absorb nutrients from the gut, metabolic bone disease, um, and um, and it clearly is a hygiene problem and it emphasises that whole um, story we were talking about before in terms of designing the enclosure so that um, they can get um, adequate um, stimulation, uh, that they can get um, quality of life from doing things, but it's easy enough for us to still um, manage them by cleaning out the stools and um, and also making sure that, um, you know, crickets are not released into the uh, enclosure because they may uh, ingest some of the dried stools and, and uh, provide a... Um, an avenue for the recycling of those coccidia oocysts, um, and uh, and end up um, contaminating the the uh, young lizards uh, much with much greater uh, load of coccidia oocysts than they would otherwise get. Um, it certainly is a um, a regular problem that we see in young bearded dragons, um, and uh, and um, and I think uh, trying to manage those parasites is one of the uh, most important things people can um, practice in their bearded dragon husbandry. Yeah, and I and I think that's a, one of the key points with that is if um, if a practitioner sees a an unwell young bearded dragon, um, one of the very important things that they need to do is do a basic fecal flotation or even a cloacal swab. And look for coccidia because clinical coccidiosis is a common cause of an unwell young bearded dragon. Um, so another episode we will be talking about um, parasitic problems in reptiles in the future, Mark, I think. Um, another one to add to the list with, with what we need to provide. Next week's going to be, we're just about to finish here. I know we rushed through or we went quickly through um, bearded dragons there, but we wanted to do a, a fairly quick, um, um, a summary of a, um, a, of a species and um, um, a breakdown of some of the common things that are seen rather than sort of labour the point with one particular problem with them. So if um, if you do or you don't like um, um, the way we worked through that particular um, species, then send us an email, um, vetgurus at gmail.com. Um, so next week's going to be, um, we're, I think we're going to record a couple of next week, aren't we, Mark? Because um, by the sound of it, you're off for a little holiday in a week or two. So we're going to pre-record one or two next week. And um, um, I think that the topic that we'll be having next week is um on another reptile topic um, and that we recorded um, a couple of months ago that um, we um, had in the bank um, for such a situation when we're not both available, but we'll record another one or two to to add in case you get caught up on your holidays and you get too much um, sunburn there, Mark, and you can't come back um, for an extra week or so. So, um, And I look forward to... Um, a report from your little holiday, Mark, when um, when we get back in, um, when you get back in two or three weeks. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and um, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.